right, Spark. So why Jesus? Well, let's see. I was born and raised in a Christian home. And so when you grow up in the church, you kind of know the correct answers to why Jesus. And so as a Q grouper, we, we talk about how a lot of times there's a question beneath the question. And so for me, when I hear this question, the implicit question of why Jesus feels a lot more like, why Jesus like still, right? Because my why Jesus in general hasn't really changed much. I, like I still believe like the Lord is gracious and good and that like the stories about the person of Jesus paint a really compelling picture of rightness in the world. And I believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ like epitomizes and instantiates God's plan to set things right. And some of the nitty-gritty theological details there have been changed, but the essence is really still that. And that's not like super like exciting on like a personal level. Um, so for me, the still kind of comes from like the experience with the church and Christianity. So why Jesus with all of that still? And the cheeky answer is that all of my escape plans keep getting foiled. And the more serious answer is that each time I've asked, is this really it? God has answered, there's more. And so the first, is this really it moment, came when I was in middle school. See, the church that I grew up in used a Young Earth Creationism curricula for its early middle school uh, Sunday school material, at least at that time. And so when my seventh grade science teacher started the unit on evolution, I, I was prepared, right? I raised my hand. I went, so what about creationism? And my science teacher very patiently and gratefully, gracefully shut that down with, that's not really considered a valid scientific theory. Now, I'm a scientist, and I've long been kind of a science-minded person. So when I was handed this piece of information, I went to the library, and I checked out a very tall stack of books on science and faith and creation and evolution. And at the ripe age of 12, just as I was barely starting to independently construct my own faith, I started to deconstruct it, although I probably wouldn't have called it then. Um, and so I asked, can I still be a scientist and, and still be a Christian? And what does it look like to hold the modern scientific consensus on the Earth's origin and still believe in God? And what are my options? And is this really it? And God said, nope, there's more. And so I read about scientists reconciling their belief in God with scientific understanding and their myriad explanations of how those fit together. And so I figured... I could still be a Christian, even if I didn't agree with my church about evolution. But as you might imagine, I kept finding more and more things that I didn't really agree with the people at my church about. Um, now, the area that I grew up in is a stronghold of conservative evangelical Christianity. And we joked that the question there wasn't, do you go to church, but where do you go to church? And so my idea of Christianity and what that looked like and what that meant was still pretty small, right? It was heavily biased by the whisperings of they're not real Christians, about other denominations, about other traditions um, within the people that I went to church with. And so when I went off to college, I was really, really scared that if I were to look for a church, I would only find more of the same thing. And so again, I found myself asking, is this really it? And so I spent a bit of time my first year of college running away from Christianity by A, avoiding the various campus ministries and their incredible persistence, and B, occasionally going to Catholic Mass with the new guy I was dating, Milo. So because some of the most accidentally influential translation vocal adults that I had gone to church with had expressed at least to their kids that the Catholics weren't real Christians, I didn't like that idea very much, and so I figured I'd you know, hide from God in the Catholic Church. 
Now, one of my preferred methods for avoiding the aforementioned persistent campus ministries was by telling them that I, I had already picked one out. I was planning to join a diversity Christian fellowship. I couldn't possibly join their group. And thus, this was true. I was planning to do that. I didn't actually do that until a little bit later. Um, see, for a long time, InterVarsity sent its various chapters on this week-long retreat in the spring after finals. They've been doing it for decades. And my parents met through InterVarsity. And so that spring of my first year, my parents sent me an email along the lines of, we're not really sure where you're at, and we're not going to make you go. But it was a very meaningful experience for us both, and we'd really like it if you did. And so I went, this might as well happen, and so I agreed to meet with one of the local chapter staff for coffee, and it turned out that she was Catholic. And so we had all this lovely conversation about Catholicism and Protestantism and how they needed each other in so many ways. And so I drove four hours to go spend a week in the remote woods of the Upper Peninsula, um, with a bunch of total strangers. Um, met Jimmy there, apparently. Um, but that kick-started my time with InterVarsity, which was the space that really helped answer that question. Is this the only kind of church that I will find? Is this what Christianity has to be? Is this it? No, there's more. Because as decidedly evangelical as InterVarsity is, it's also really intentional about the global evangelical movement. And so I got to see and experience and appreciate a much larger more diverse, more multi-ethnic Christianity than I had known before. But eventually, global evangelicalism even felt a little too small, and I had some qualms with some of those common stances and those things in those spaces. So, you know, women in ministry was, like, more okay in a lot of those spaces, definitely more than the church I grew up in. But I had a lot of friends who were, like, various flavors of, like, not cis and not straight, and they weren't really okay in those spaces. And I was also kind of getting sick of the IV formula for Bible studies. Felt like it was missing something. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I really could wish that I could find somewhere where I could just, like, sit in a room with some other people and like a pastor, someone who knows stuff, and just talk about things and ask questions. But that's not a thing people do. And so as I got ready for grad school, I found myself again asking, is this really it? Now this time it was a little bit less scared, and I was less scared that the answer was going to be yes, and a lot more just pretty sure that the unicorn of a space that I imagined just didn't exist. And so it was much more of a resign, uh, so this is probably really it. But as I scrolled through the list of church, churches after list of churches, I stumbled across this like little church with like a modern logo and a name and, you know, female pastor and it was listed on some website as being LGBTQ plus friendly. And so I thought, hey, I'll check it out. If that's not it, I'll figure something else out. And so I found Spark. And on my very first day here, I was introduced to a group of people and I sat down and I was immediately invited to something called Q Group by at least three different people in the span of about 10 minutes. And so I showed up to this Q group, not really knowing what to expect, and lo and behold, it was a bunch of people sitting in a yard with a pastor just asking questions and making sense of things. So why Jesus still, Spark? Because Jesus keeps telling me over and over, every time I ask, is this really it? No, there's more. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Uh, before we get started really quickly, I wanted to first of all say thank you to all of you for your support as um, I and uh, our family has been dealing with the death of my dad uh, last week. 
Um, as many of you know, there are many very complicated dynamics there uh, that we've been navigating for decades and we will continue to navigate for decades. And we're thankful that in this season of life that we have you all to process that together with. So, so thank you so much for that. Um, we are, we're getting, uh, moving through our series. We're about halfway through our series on fruits of the spirit, fruit of the spirit. And this week, uh, we are on kindness. Um, if you want any help keeping track of where we are in the series, it might help to like remember or commit to memory the order of the fruit of the Spirit as the Apostle Paul lists them in Galatians. To help you with that, um, might I recommend this hidden gem that our family years ago came across on Spotify that I think will really help you commit uh, the, the order that Paul lists to memory. I had to stop the song right there because you would lose control with how hard this song slaps. So, uh, you know, you, you, now you won't probably be able to forget the, the order of where we're at uh, in this series. So we are, we're in kindness. Let, let's go through with it. Uh, I think uh, you may have many thoughts about what kindness means, uh, not just in the way that maybe we use it uh, in modern English, but also maybe the, in the way that the Bible uses it when it describes kindness. Um, I think that um, one way to start like diving into the world of the different things that kindness can connote, it helps us to understand the way the Apostle Paul uses this kind of language in uh, other parts of his writings as well. So uh, there's a, a line in Colossians where the Apostle Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So those words that Paul has there do tend to hang together with the idea of kindness. So there's this, there's this concept of, of um, you know, compassion and meekness and humility uh, that are all related. Now, when you hear those kinds of words, especially in the way that we, uh, we talk about it in, in modern English, there may be other concepts that come to mind as well. So is, is kindness or meekness, humility, is that really, is it being nice? Is it being submissive? Those are words that uh, we often use, and sometimes when it comes to the case of submissive, even the Bible uses uh, when we're broadly talking about the, uh, the concept of kindness. And that can go uh, a couple different ways for you, depending on where you're at. I think many of us um, aspire to be more kind. Maybe some of you have that as part of New Year's resolution present or in the past. Um, so it's something like you, you try to live up to. But then there's also another angle of kindness where when you do think about it as being submissive or meek, there is this idea that, um, there, that the niceness is a negative thing. 
that it means to be accepting, like passive, and accepting of the status quo. Um, we often think of uh, being nice as being polite, even maybe when you shouldn't be or you feel like you shouldn't be. Even uh, like baby Jesus gets wrapped up in these kinds of characterizations of nice, right? We sing songs at Christmas time uh, about uh, baby Jesus, uh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, right? There is no baby on earth that you could characterize that way, but we sing songs about like, if Jesus epitomized kindness, then surely he never protested, like at all, not even to his parents, not even when he was a baby. Um, in fact, we, like, uh, you know, many of us who grew up in Asian or Asian American context were often taught that to be nice or to be kind was not only an extremely high value, but one of the ways that you express that niceness or kindness is by uh, never speaking back against the authority figures in your life. So perhaps even if you're a baby, don't cry. Like just, you know, the, that is the, you know, a kind of the, the situation that, that many of us might have been socialized in. I remember when I was very little, there was a, a time when I was eating lunch and my grandmother who was in town from Pakistan um, was like helping uh, set the table and I wanted to eat, so we were eating fish and I wanted to drink milk uh, along with the meal, um, which I don't know if you know this, in some South Asian circles, there's folk wisdom that you shouldn't eat fish and drink milk at the same time because it'll give you a stomachache. Um, I, when, when my grandmother reminded me that I shouldn't uh, eat fish and drink milk at the same time, I asked her, but how is that true? To which the room became silent, <laughs> jaws dropped. My mom, I remember like she basically tried to usher me out of the room for my physical safety for <laughs> asking the question. And I was told afterwards that to have asked that question was rude, it was unkind, because that's the attitude that we would have, a deferential attitude, a kind attitude would be to not ask those kinds of questions. That is actually the, a kind of niceness that I think maybe you are tapping into that is not the kind of niceness you actually want to aspire to. So there are many ways that we talk about this uh, in our culture today, right? There's this skepticism of nice parents, parents who are very well-meaning, but they can, but in their niceness, in their desire not to cause trouble, they end up perpetuating the injustices around them and supporting uh, an unjust status quo. Shows up in all kinds of discussions about race, class, um, it showed gender, it shows up in, in many different ways. Um, recently, when Queen Elizabeth died, I thought it launched a very healthy discussion around whether her famed kindness and neutrality was actually something good, like a good use of, uh, of her platform. And so, they, so I think, rightfully so, there is some skepticism that comes with uh, you know, encouraging each other to be nice or be kind or be polite. Um, it can even it get to the point where like, I have this uh, inherent bias where anytime someone is nice or kind, I'm always wondering, like, what's the angle here? What's the motivation? And that may show up, uh, for example, in this case. Thanks. You're like really pretty. Thank you. So you agree? What? You think you're really pretty? Oh. Right. Right? That's like, like, wait, well, why are you, why are you complimenting me? Or why, why, what are you saying? And then you, you know, there's this inherent fear that, that not only being nice or being told to be nice 
is a tool used by those in power to keep their power and to keep objections to their, their power and influence quiet. Um, if you uh, are, have been at Spark for a while or getting familiar with it, you would know like, you know, one of the main ways in society that we um, talk about socializing niceness is we in particular uh, try to emphasize that kind of value among women or girls, right? That, that, to, you know, that to be a good girl is to be nice and polite, to seek out social harmony. Um, and sometimes even the Bible gets co-opted uh, in service of that message. Um, the, the women's group that meets at Spark, uh, as if you were to be a part of it, you would learn is decidedly does not take that kind of uh, perspective. I believe uh, in, uh, I think an early draft name of the group was Women Against the Patriarchy. I, wait, I don't, I think that might have been, I'm not sure. Um, but you get the idea, and you would get the idea if you, you checked it out, that, that um, you know, there is there's this due cautiousness around how kindness or politeness can show up uh, in society. In fact, I think um, one of the ways that followers of Jesus have articulated this perspective really well comes from Bishop Desmond Tutu, who has famously said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Right? That is, that is the idea. And again, for Bishop Desmond Tutu and followers of Jesus and women in the, the Spark group, for all of us, that is not despite the Bible. Like, we don't believe this despite the Bible. We believe it because the Bible. And so it does raise this question then, okay, so if the Bible would never ask us to be silent or polite or kind in such a way that it manifests in perpetuating injustice, then what does kindness mean for Paul to say that it, that it resides in us, that it produces a kind of love in us that can change the world? So the, what, what I would say, if you actually look at the way submission and kindness and meekness and humility work in the Bible itself and in the way that Paul talks about it, you will see a type of kindness that is anything but passive. It is aggressive, it actively subverts the status quo, and it upends the world order. That's what we're gonna try to dive in through as we go through some of maybe the hardest passages that get brought up in perpetuating this kind of uh, meekness um, that, that can seem to um, you know, be the, with the goal of like keeping hierarchies in place. One, like if we're gonna talk about submission, uh, and the idea of like being kind and submissive. I think it's important for us to go to some of the texts that most often get brought up as, uh, as an example of encouraging people or a group of people to be submissive in a way that seems to support, to uphold like unjust hierarchies. So that comes uh, often in the context of a command given multiple times in the New Testament by multiple authors for wives to submit to their husbands, okay? So I, I, I don't think we could get through a good discussion about what uh, submission looks like and how it can be subversive without talking uh, about these in the first place. So one, uh, a couple things to get context around um, these words uh, showing up in the text. Uh, number one, uh, every time uh, across these passages that um, the author is telling wives to submit to their husbands, they're also telling uh, slaves 
to submit to their masters. So one, on one level, you could say, however you think about the durability or the eternal nature of a command to uphold slavery and for slaves to, obey, to uh, obey their masters, you could think about it the same way as you would think about any alleged uh, eternal nature of the commands that are being given here. They often go together. Also, what it should do is ask you uh, to like, dive deeper and understand like, why, what would be the point of issuing these kinds of commands within the context that the writer is in. So I think it actually helps to go through one of the passages that goes into the most detail about what submission would look like and what the goal of it is um, in this context of uh, telling a wife to submit to her husband and a slave to su submit to their master. So that is in that last one uh, in 1 Peter 3. So we'll do that. But first, just so you get an idea of what it looks like, what this is, these are often scholars call these household codes, right? So this is a, you know, an in instructions to all the different people that might exist within a certain kind of Greco-Roman household. It's obviously rich enough um, to be able to have uh, like all of these different roles, but you would have like, there's instructions often from to wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, right? So the idea is to figure out <clears throat> what is the goal behind um, this, these kinds of instructions. So here's what it looks like in 1 Peter, okay? So it starts with wives, then it'll clarify, submit to your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and respect of your conduct. And then later, he fleshes it out more, saying, finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. And then just a little bit later, fleshes out the thought even more. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. So there's a couple things you can see from this context. One, Far from it looking like Peter is uh, endorsing the household code that he's in, notice there's an implicit recognition that in this kind of household code, there is, there is uh, not just an opportunity, there is abuse. There is, uh, there is hostility, right? That is the idea. That's why that, that Peter has to offer encouragement to people in these situations in the first place. It is a recognition that with these hierarchies will come systems of abuse, and what Peter is offering is the only Jesus way forward through that situation, which is to submit in such a way that actually subverts the whole thing. It is a way of responding to oppression that stops the cycle of oppression in the entire process by putting to shame the oppressor. There's another uh, situation too in some of those passages that we listed that I think can help add, again, more context into uh, what is going on here. And that is uh, in Ephesians 5. So this is another place where wives are told to submit to their husbands. Maybe it's the most famous one. It ends up uh, in a ton of 
hetero-Christian weddings. Like you'll see in the, like in the vows or in the sermon, like this will come up because in those contexts, it's this very like uh, seemingly flowery, beautiful thing where you know, a, a wife is committing to submit to her husband, a husband is committing to um, sacrifice themselves uh, for their wife. And you know, it, I think there's often layers of uh, stereotypes about femininity and machismo, right? Like the idea that you, know, you'll, you will die for your wife even though clearly nobody in this audience will ever literally have to do that. It's something very easy you can tell yourself in your mind to make yourself feel heroic. But this is what we say often uh, to each other's in weddings. I think what happens, what is almost always missing from discussions like these, whether it's in wedding contexts or even in uh, other kinds of discussions, is the preface that comes before these commands uh, show up. So one the thing that's very important to note is that right before Paul says, uh, Paul describes this type of relationship between husbands and wives, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in context, that is clearly a command for the entire Christian community. Everyone submits to one another when you're in the family of God. And some of the ways that that manifests in that culture in that time were the instructions that Paul gives following. Another thing that he does in the beginning of that whole preface is to say that walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So again, the command that is given to husbands in that statement is something that Paul says is for all Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is on you to do that. So what you actually see in this context is that it's not like the burden of submission falls especially on women or the burden of sacrificing yourself for your loved ones fall especially on men. That is what being a follower of Jesus means for anybody, regardless of your gender or your class or your race. This is, um, this is actually, you know, again, far from reading these texts and seeing uh, upholding the household codes that exist in those days, what you actually see is a quite subversive approach towards how marriages look for followers of Jesus. It will not be characterized by dominion and oppression and an authoritative nature like a lot of relationships in that day. If there was any doubt from reading a passage like this, the uh, egalitarian nature of Paul's thinking, we have another text from Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians where he actually talks kind of similarly uh, about this topic, but puts it even clearer. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That probably you read that and you're like, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like what they would say back then in that culture. But then the next line, he offers a reciprocal, likewise, the the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you think, or if this sounds very mutual, egalitarian, and great to you, wonderful. That's not how it would have sounded to the original audience and the culture from which these words came from. Statements like this are actually destabilizing to the households the way that they were back then. It really would be to say like, wait a second, if there isn't a man who's in charge of the whole household uh, over their, their wife and their kids and their slaves, then what even is a household? That would have been the attitude. And here we are with Paul saying, you know what? That's not how we're gonna characterize our relationships and we're gonna figure out what a Jesus family looks like in the process. And followers of Jesus have been figuring it out ever since. 
So hopefully you see so far, like from some of the, like the passages that again seem to be upholding a status quo that we recognize rightfully as unjust, what's going on there is not just a submission for the sake of supporting the status quo, it's a subversion. There is a goal that is directed towards being kind and being gentle and humble and respectful. And that goal is to destroy the systems of oppression that fight against that kind of kindness. So uh, instead of uh, offering this, you know, the typical picture that you would see back then and today, um, the, the Apostle Paul offers a radical vision in which love and kindness and mercy and humility uh, destroy the abuse that we were talking about and they render them powerless, those systems. They put them to shame, as the words that, that we uh, just described. And they, they pave the path for mutual submission, mutual respect, and mutual kindness. There is a, a modern uh, thinker who actually, I think, summarized this really well and calls out the, um, the, the challenge, like what, ki- what it takes, the kind of kindness that it takes to, to really um, uh, win over um, our enemies in this way. So we, it goes, we don't have to fall from grace. Put down the weapons you fight with. Kill him with kindness. That's, of course, Bishop Selena Gomez characterized the, uh, the Jesus ethic very well uh, in that song. That really is what we're talking about here. And this is actually what we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about today. This is the hardest part about practicing kindness. It is maintaining the belief that that kindness is what in fact will overcome and destroy the systems of oppression that we experience in our lives because it's much easier to repay evil with evil or abuse with abuse, like we, uh, like we have been talking about. But really, really, this whole idea of killing with kindness is a deep core part of the Jesus ethic. It is non-negotiable. It started with Jesus himself and was one of the most challenging things about his teachings. Famously, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, turn the other also. and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile, give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Those are... Those are some hard words to live by. But again, Jesus presents this as the way forward in response to the evil that we experience in our lives. And followers of Jesus consistently ran with this daring, challenging vision of what kindness looks like. Here's how Paul very much springboarding off of that idea that Jesus just shared. This is what he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, there's nothing 
passive about being a pacifist. To say that being kind results in uh, burning coals being thrown on your enemy is to say that there is a genuine uh, painful reaction that occurs in the oppressor when they are being confronted with their injustice in the way that Jesus' followers confront them. The, and in these writings too, they, uh, Jesus and Paul don't shy away from being very clear about the futility of the alternative. So the, fu- the alternative being, you know, repay evil with evil, practice vengeance. Um, there is, a, um, a, you know, a, a, a director, Quentin Tarantino, who is probably the, the best storyteller in our era of revenge fantasies. And he has a, a character in one of his most revenge fantasiest uh, movies, Kill Bill, explain it actually very well before he warns the protagonist uh, as the protagonist is ready to go off on their journey of revenge. He says, revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. The Jesus movement builds on this as well, where we have Jesus himself saying things like, all who draw the sword will die by the sword and commanding his disciples to put their weapons down. This is also what he means when he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Remember, that's not a command. That's not a suggestion. That is a statement. It's a description of the way the kingdom of God works. It's a threat. It is a threat to people, like all of us at times, who try to build our inheritance of the earth our own way, little bit at a time, selfishly, without consideration for the impact that it has on other people. This is epitomized in so many of Jesus' sayings that show up in other places in the New Testament that followers of Jesus have carried forward forever. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, and as Jesus said as he was dying on the cross, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Love, pray, bless, forgive. Those are the weapons of kindness that the New Testament and Jesus put forward. Now, I think if you're feeling like that, uh, I get it, I'm with you, but I don't I have no idea how I can actually live that out. Good, I think we're all, we're in the same place. It's very difficult. There is uh, an angle that I think we can consider that at first might make it feel even more daunting, but I think can actually be very encouraging. And that is, in many of these uh, instructions or statements, in some of the letters that we've talked about so far, there is uh, connected to it um, this idea of imitating God. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, after he uh, describes the turning the other cheek, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, there uh, also are times when the Apostle Paul says, as before he says that everyone should submit to each other and everyone should give themselves up for each other, he says, imitate God, right? So that is, that is the idea here. And you'll see, too, there's a sharp consideration there in that context of being kind in the way that God is kind. To appreciate what that looks like, I think it helps to spend a little time dwelling on the type of kindness that God shows. 
So one thing too, I think that's very challenging and like trying to discern the kindness of God is we often start from the premise of what we think is kind and then we impute that onto God. Saying that's, that's what God's kindness must look like. Um, I have a background in uh, political and consumer psychology. Uh, years ago, there was a team uh, in my old lab that produced a study around that time that, that showed that basically, um, uh, this is probably not surprising, uh, especially these days, that um, your views about what Jesus thinks about a variety of political issues are highly correlated to your own views. So if you're very conservative, surprise, surprise, you think Jesus would be just as conservative as you, if not more, is actually, actually what the study finds. And if you are very liberal on a variety of political issues, surprise, surprise, you think that Jesus is just as uh, kind, or sorry, just as liberal uh, as you are, if not more liberal. Um, I think it's also characterized well in uh, the author and Lamott's quote where uh, she says something like, um, you, you, can, um, you, know, you can be sure that you've uh, safely remade God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do, right? <laughs> like that, that is the idea uh, that, that we're talking about here. So we, let's, let's resist that urge, right? To, to like start with our premise for what godly kindness must look like and see how the, the surprising ways that God's kindness shows up uh, in the backdrop of some of these texts. One thing too that is helpful to start out with is the way Jesus talks about um, showing kindness and love uh, to one's enemies around the same context that, that we've just been talking about so far. So in that same Sermon on the Mount context, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, <clears throat> what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. What they we're starting from is the premise that it is natural to be kind to people that you like and to people that are like you. You don't actually accomplish anything in doing that. That is, that is the essence of like tribalism, of like being a human being that looks out for themselves and their own. We're operating too in a world in which it is, you get a lot of encouragement for cutting people out of your life that you no longer care for, people that you think you've outgrown. I think that we've, we've reached this place where often we treat, uh, we treat people like someone like Marie Kondo treats clothes, right? If it doesn't actively bring you joy, cut it out. That's a very dangerous attitude. We end up in a place where in a world that is uh, lonely and cruel and isolating, where all we're doing is leaning into that when we cannot tolerate the presence of people who aren't just making us feel good all the time. You know, in a world that is cruel and lonely and selfish, where everyone looks out for themselves and their own, no matter what the cost is to anybody else, and they're ready to cancel out anyone who harshes their vibe in any way, kindness is one of the most powerful weapons we have to show the world that it ought not to look that way. 
there is uh, one last uh, sequence of events, like a narrative that actually unfolds uh, throughout the New Testament that I think will help us um, like really appreciate the way this kind of kindness shows up uh, in the story that God is telling us. Um, so this is, uh, and it actually has to do with some of the people that we've been quoting from so far, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, they are uh, wrapped up uh, in this narrative. So let's uh, start with um, the, the beginning of um, the sequence of events that, that I wanted to describe. So um, in the early days of the Jesus movement, when the followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were Jews who had spent their lives hanging out with Jesus or uh, people within those communities. Um, they were navigating pressing questions around if or how to incorporate Gentiles into the family of God, into the Jesus movement. Scholars will actually argue that is probably the single most challenging pressing issue that the early Christians were dealing with and that it is a thread that, that shows up like across almost every letter in the New Testament itself. The apostle Peter actually had to have a vision from God, God's self to communicate that Gentiles were no longer to be characterized as unclean, that they were ushered into God's family as they were, and they did not have to become Jewish in order to be a follower of, uh, of Jesus. It was extremely counterintuitive, and as a way to get Peter leaning in to this new way of thinking about God's family, God tells the apostle Peter to go to the household of a man named Cornelius, who was not, uh, uh, not Jewish, uh, and to preach the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius' household. And that for Peter to be prepared to see God do some amazing things through that preaching. So here's how that narrative goes as described in the book of Acts. So this is told from Peter's perspective in the quotes. I now realize uh, how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful and controversial scene, like for, for where it's occurring in the, the narrative in Acts. There's also a sadness to the story where we find out through other parts of the New Testament that this change of heart that Peter had uh, didn't take or not take fully just yet. Because apparently there was a situation where after some time after that, because of pressure, from the surrounding community that he was in, he, uh, he wasn't as, um, as inclusive of the, the Gentiles, uh, Gentile followers of Jesus as he had been previously. And the reason we know that is because he gets put on blast in the Bible by the Apostle Paul in the letter to Galatia, which is where we've been talking about what kindness looks like as a fruit of the Spirit. 
Here's how the Apostle Paul says it um, earlier in, uh, in Galatians. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So clearly something had happened that had put Peter uh, on, on the edge of, how, of what kindness looks like in their community. But then you have the Apostle Paul who is reminded uh, who, and reminds his audience how actually inclusive and kind and gracious God can be. There is, um, uh, in the backdrop of when Paul is to say something like this, it's not like he had, um, he had an easy time coming to that conclusion either. He had an experience where also God literally blew him backwards, knocked him on his feet um, to help him understand just how kind and loving and far God's mercy extends to. He has, uh, certain, uh, he has certain passages in the back of his mind that I think we need to put uh, up front right now. So uh, a common passage that where we bring up or people bring up in conversations to talk about the kindness of God actually comes up in a scenario of people often trying to defend how, uh, how unkind God is and how you should be okay with it. So this is an example. There's a part in Romans where Paul is actually talking about this very challenge of Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus getting along with each other. And he says, what then shall we say? That God is unjust? Not at all. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now this passage often gets brought up uh, in discussions where people are responding to some kind of criticism like, you know, you, you could have an outsider say, um, I don't understand how it is kind for God to only save some people and condemn the entire rest of humanity to hell in eternity forever. That seems unkind to which this defense is often given, like, well, sorry, God says God will have compassion on whom God wants to have compassion and mercy on whom God wants to have mercy. And you're like, well, that sounds mean. And then the follow-up, uh, the follow-up justification often get given in these situations is say, well, I'm sorry that that doesn't seem logical to you, but you know what? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We may have this desire within us to be kind and gracious uh, and not uphold the truth, but God holds firm. And if God, and you know, if you don't understand um, that God can uh, somehow show up in seemingly unkind ways, that's on you. The tragedy of this entire line of argumentation is these two passages are actually saying the exact opposite of the unkindness of God. In the context that occurs in that passage in Romans, the Apostle Paul is literally responding to this idea that Gentiles need, they, they cannot be welcomed into the family of God as is. And the way that Paul responds to that objection is to say, what is it to you if it turns out that God is kinder and more loving than you could have possibly imagined? What do you lose by that kind of compassion? If God wants to be more compassionate than you thought, what, what, what is this negative attitude or negative response to that? 
And even with this idea of my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, it is helpful to think about the context that this came in. This was not an example of an Old Testament prophet telling Israel that they were about to go into captivity and that I got, you know, I know that God promised that God would always be faithful to the covenant, that you would never lose out on the, the land and your families, and you, but uh, sorry, you're about to go out into captivity, you're gonna lose all of it, and you know what, if that doesn't make sense, too bad, God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's not what was happening. This is written from the vantage point of Israel already being in captivity or thinking about what life in captivity will be like or is like. They have witnessed losing everything they had that formed their identity. They are now strangers in a strange land. They are reeling from the consequences of the own injustice that they wrought on Israel that put them in that situation. And it is in that space that the prophet says, you know what? Don't worry. It may seem like you have lost everything that you have committed injustice in such a way that you will never be able to recover your community, your identity, and that land. Don't worry, I got this. I can forgive anything. I can fix anything. I can restore everyone. To which a natural reaction for a repentant Israelite in that community would be, but how? That is impossible. They are so far from home. They have generations of kids now growing up who only have heard of what it's like, what it was like when God was faithful to Israel in their land. To which God's response is, I understand that it does not make sense to you how I can make all of this right. But guess what? I operate on a plane that is far higher than yours. I've got this. Don't worry about it. That is the kindness of God being revealed in the Apostle Paul's letters and in the Jesus movement. We're in this situation where um, when you're confronted with this loving God, um, it's, it's actually wonderful to think that God can be that kind, um, that God can be so gracious. But then of course we get back to be kind like God is kind and be perfect like God is perfect. We're being constantly pushed, like Denise mentioned in her prayer earlier, to, to love like God does and to be open to the possibility that God is showing us a way of kindness that blows even our own most open-minded minds that we can bring to the table. You know, we want God to pursue reconciliation at all costs across the universe throughout the ages. That's a comforting thought. But are you willing to pursue those who have wronged you with that kind of kindness? Can you love your enemies unconditionally, as we've seen in these passages? Will you rejoice when you find out that God's family includes people that you hate? Can you forgive 70 times seven as the gospel writers say? Can you sacrifice for people who will never appreciate what you have done for them within their lifetime? Can you extend mercy to the thousandth generation? As the Torah says, can you never give up 
on people who have disappointed you over and over and over? Can you believe all things and hope all things as the Apostle Paul says? You could look at that and say, no way. I cannot do those things. But if the story of God has taught us anything, it is to not underestimate the power of the Spirit to show us the way and for the power of the Spirit to produce in us the way of Jesus that reveals this kindness. We're now gonna transition to our time together in which we dwell on the ultimate act of love and kindness that centers our faith together. It is, when, uh, it is in remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his victory in his resurrection. And we do this together um, with a tradition that emanates from Jesus himself. For in the night in which he was betrayed, as the scriptures say, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we are told by God and shown over and over and over, all are welcome at this table.